Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. It's hard to believe, but at one time, there was a comedy show on NBC that was getting 50 shares every week. Now, this was in the late 60s, and it was a show called Laugh-In, and it was very revolutionary for its time. My guest this week and next is the... Well, I guess you'd say the creator and uh, basically the showrunner of Laugh-In. His name is George Slaughter. He is 93 years old, but boy, you wouldn't know it. Uh, This guy has led a very, very interesting and colorful life. This week, we are going to talk about Laugh-In. We're also going to talk about another show he did, a similar show for ABC called Turn On, That show, you talk about being canceled after one episode. It was literally canceled during a commercial break in its debut episode. So we're going to talk about that as well. George has written a book called Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy. And he's also the first person in the entertainment industry to offer me a job. That story is first. So this week and next, George Slaughter, right here on Hollywood and Levine. Well, George, I would be shocked if you remember this, but you and I once met a long time ago. This was back in the late 60s when Laugh-In was at its heyday. And I was a 19-year-old intern at KMPC Radio, and our afternoon disc jockey was Gary Owens, who, of course, cool. was on Laughing, yeah. beautiful downtown Burbank. That's right. And for fun, I used to write comedy material for him to use on his radio show, and unbeknownst to me... He sent it on to you, and one day I got a call asking if I could meet you and be in your office the next day at 4 o'clock, and I'm like, what? And and I went, and Gary, unsolicited, had given you that material, which you liked, and you offered me a job. <laughs> <I'll>, okay. <laughs> on laughing. 
but but here's the thing i said well can i do this from home or part time and you said no this is a job you have to show up every day and i, I said found it that way right <laughs> yeah i i said i'll lose my 2s deferment i'll wind up drafted in vietnam so i i couldn't take the job but uh Thank you again <laughs> for your faith in me that day. Well, you've gone on very well, you know, probably better than if you'd gone to work for me. <laughs> well, who who knows? At the time, you couldn't convince me of that as I was driving home, ready to drive over a bridge. But I, and you've done this a, a couple of times. There's a, another very successful comedy writer named Alan Katz who was uh, in advertising in Chicago. Yes. And he put together all the funny blurbs for um, Screaming Yellow Zonkers, which you read and you invited him to California and you hired him as a comedy writer. It was an interesting thing. I was in the, I was in the grocery store and I saw this box and it was a popcorn with caramelized popcorn and the box had all these jokes on it. I said, this is funny. I got to find this guy. I couldn't find him. He was in Chicago. So I traced him down. And I said, Alan Katz is George Slaughter. And he said, yeah, and I'm Petula Clark. And he hung up on me. <laughs> I said, well, wait a minute. I said, Alan Katz, George Slaughter, I'm going to talk to you about laughing. He said, sure you do. And he hung up again. He hung up on me three times. I said, now listen, you little fuck. I'm going to come back and slap the car. I'm talking serious. He said, you, you mean this is serious? I said, maybe the only serious thing I'll do all day. So I brought him out to California. And uh, he was very young and very raw. And uh, he was in the office and uh, he, he was outrageous then. But anyhow, in the middle of the meeting, he gets up and he says, I can't work with this man and stormed out of the office. And I went after him. I said, come back, you little, I'll slap the color. I said, what are you doing? He said, I just wanted to get your attention. That was Alan Katz. And he became one of the <laughs> one of the best writers on laughing. He still is doing some stuff. We're He's still doing great. Yep. Yep, I was on the picket line with him just a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so I don't, so that, I don't know that putting Alan Katz on the picket line would make it any more uh, effective. No, but it was more fun. Oh, sure. He's, he's a funny guy. He's a great guy. I like Alan. Very funny. So let's talk about uh, the origin of Laugh-In. I mean, as it, it became this huge phenomena, but when you started, I mean, first of all, who knew who Rowan and Martin were? Did you get hired to write a variety show no. for Rowan and Martin? No, what happened? I had done a ton of variety shows, the Judy Garland show and the Dinosaur show. Yeah, stuff. we'll talk about Judy Garland later. I yes. All, <laughs> I done all of those shows and NBC had uh, Monday night at eight o'clock. They had nothing to put in there. They were getting killed with Lucille Ball and Gunsmoke. So uh, Herb Schlosser said, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, I've got an idea if you're willing to try it. I said, it's a show nobody you've ever heard of. It's all new people and it's going to cost nothing. So they put the show on really to have something on the air opposite Lucy until they got a real show ready. And uh, I showed up with all of these crazy people and all. And this group of writers who were outcasts, they were not sitcom writers. They were not variety writers. They were just funny people. And so we put them all together and uh, started to put this thing, you know, it started to happen. Well, 
they wanted a, a host for it. And they, my idea was to have no host. But so I went to Jim Ellis at Timex, where I'd done a bunch of specials. And I told him, I said, uh, would he do this show? So he bought the show and they, they wanted a host. And the show was not designed for a show. Specifically, it was designed not to have a host. But I knew Rowan and Martin. They did a great nightclub act. Uh, and uh, Dan was straight and Dick was silly. So we brought them in to do introductions because Timex and NBC said I needed a host. So they came in and they really just did most of the introductions and so forth. And it was a great nightclub act. And uh, and they hit. So it was there was so much accident involved in laughing that uh, I can't begin to describe it to you because things that would go wrong, we would put on the air. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of the show, how freewheeling it was. And there were quick cuts and blackouts and gags. So you could pretty much assemble anything. I imagine putting the show together, you just had... 250 fragmented pieces that you would try to cobble together. And it, it didn't even have to make sense. It was just one non sequitur after another. Deliberately did not make sense. There was a wonderful woman by the name of Carolyn Raskin. And she developed many of the editing techniques that we now take for granted, you know, the Chirons and all of that stuff. And we would put it together and then deliberately just interrupt things. And one of the things... Uh, I remember when I said, don't go away, we'll be right back. Dip to Black came back. See, we told you we'd be right back. The network went crazy. They said, you just told the audience to tune out. I said, no, I told the audience to come back. The fights we had with the network were endless and and, and were funny, but they didn't think they were funny. I did. Yeah, no, they were probably pretty stupid. And you guys kind of walked the line in terms of double entendres, uh, especially back then you know funk and wagnalls and and we wouldn't say funk. we would say look that up in your funk and wagnall right they said why is it like i, said, I don't know it's a speech but look that up in your funk and wagnall they didn't like the way we treated the letter f <laughs> but, but the fact that it didn't make sense is what made sense and the fact that you had to watch it to understand or try to understand what we were doing because we didn't understand what we were doing all we knew is that if anything was funny we did it and the shorter, the better. And uh, and there was nothing. It was straight variety was the only thing on television at that point. You know, music and Ed Sullivan and Jackie Gleason. So, so here came this barrage of young people doing outrageous things, saying outrageous things and uh, wearing outrageous costumes. And it was a barrage of colors. When you see television today, everything is dark. Everything is black, you know, and, and laughing was a barrage of colors and, and sounds. And uh, nothing like that on the air. As a matter of fact, if laughing, laughing is now streaming. And you look at it and it still looks very hip because nothing is like that. Colors are difficult to use. We've had a barrage of colors and sounds. It yeah, was... it was certainly in your face. I want to go back <laughs> to the casting a little. A uh, couple of people in particular. Goldie Hawn. I, I fell in love with Goldie Hawn. There was a sitcom called Good Morning World that was on a year or two before and I, I fell in love with her then that's the only reason i watched that show uh and i she was very fresh and interesting how'd you find goldie hahn uh they, they told me that uh, carolyn raskin again told me there was a dancer on the andy griffith show that everybody was talking about i said i'm not going to use dancers i need comedians he said well go look at this girl so i went down and sure enough she was delightful and then 
this line of girls on the Andy Griffith show, the only place she could go was this little blonde. So I brought her in for a meeting and she says, what do you want with them? I'm a dancer. I don't know how to do comedy. So I said, well, try this. We gave her an introduction of Dan Rowan. And when she read it, she didn't do it right. She screwed it up, something terrible. She oh, I'm sorry, I'll do it again. I said, no, Goldie, that'll be just fine. And from <laughs> there on, we never let her rehearse. And it was just immediate adoration of this innocent, gorgeous, uh, beautiful, actually very, very intelligent woman, but easily distracted. And we made a career for her out of being distracted. She's brighter than anybody I know. I was going to say, you probably then found ways to keep her distracted and confused, just we so you would get that quality. We, we invented ways. Ruth Buzzy would stand by the camera when Goldie was supposed to do an introduction and make rude sounds. And when Goldie heard, you know, there was a particular sound of, uh, uh, we had a what we called a handy gas machine that made these sounds. And if Goldie heard that, she lost it. And Ruth Buzzy would stand beside the camera and go, and Goldie couldn't. <laughs> See, it was so very it, infectious. Well, so much of it was accident. So much of it was of the moment. And then, of course, we taped till two, two o'clock in the morning, you know, because it took a long time to do all of these pieces. And it was like a, the scripts were the scripts were huge with all of the material in them. Uh, and then we would tape it and then cut it and then do anything that happened on the stage as an accident. Uh, that became part of the show. God, I had a good time. Oh, it sounds like I would have had a great time on that show. Damn yeah, army. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> See, anything, anything that didn't work, worked. I mean, Gary Owens, for instance, Gary Owens was never on the show, actually, because he did a daytime uh, radio show and he was never available when we were taping. We would tape till 10, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. So we do Gary did straight introductions. <laughs> right. And right. He would come on and, and uh, uh, just do straight introductions. And he became a, a major figure, part of it. But the rest of the cast, Alan Soups was the first openly gay character on television. He did Uncle Al, the kiddies, pal. And it was he, he was so vulnerable and so silly. And then, then of course, uh, Lily Tomlin. Yeah, uh, Lily Tomlin. How'd you find Lily Tomlin? Boy, what a diamond in the rough she, that was. She had done a couple of shows that she didn't think worked. And she was getting ready to go back to New York. And so I had her come in for a meeting and we sat and we sat there for, I guess, about two hours. And she did all of these characters, which she had never dressed her. They were just voices. And I said, I want you to do the show. She said, which character? I said, all of them. And she went, what? Well, here was this woman inventing these people. And uh, uh, she became uh, Ernestine, a telephone operator. She said, oh, is this the party to whom I am speaking? You know? And she mm-hmm. intimidated people. William F. Buckley, you know, is this Mr. F. Buckley? Anyhow, she sat in the office and did these characters. And then when she was going to do the telephone operator, she intimidated anybody who got a call from Ernestine. They were immediately very nervous because she ripped up everybody. And right before she taped, I said, Lily, Lily, I don't think this has been told. When you dial the phone, dial with this finger. I said, yeah, yeah. Nobody will know what it is. You're not giving them the finger, but we did no understand, right? Mm-hmm. So she always, oh, is this the party to whom I am speaking? Well, she would call everybody from presidents to uh, industrial leaders. And her favorite was William F. Buckley. F. Buckley. He was, <laughs> he was terrified of Lily, but they were funny together. What a talented, talented woman. So the show goes on. 
and NBC expected nothing. NBC didn't understand the show. And all of a sudden, like three, four weeks, this is catching on. How shocked were they and how surprised were you? Well, I I kind of grew up around funny people and, and I put it on the air. It was they were desperate and they were desperate and I didn't really have that much of a job. The television specials that I'd done, like with Judy and then Dinah Shore and all that, uh were straight variety shows. And I really wanted to do something. And NBC was desperate for a show. So they bought it. They didn't really mean to buy it. The original commitment was like for three shows until they could get a real show ready. And uh, in came Gary Owens with his introductions and this Lily and Goldie and Ruth Buzzy and Joanne Worley. These were character people, not musical variety performers. They were characters. And uh, those characters managed to hit. And in one show, uh, one of the... like. Judy Garland, Judy Karn could do like four or five different characters. Uh, so the cast kept appearing as different people in different costumes, bright colors, silly music, and uh, we were having a good time. And what we would do, we had a thick script, as Alan Katz would tell you, and we would tape that script, but then anything that happened other than that became part of the show. And we would stay and tape, and we'd tape mistakes. We'd tape <laughs> retakes. We'd say, uh, take, take four. And we'd do it again. And so the show was built around very funny people who didn't need a lot of sleep and who would show up and literally, <laughs> try, literally try anything. And then Carolyn Raskin took all of this, these bits and pieces and uh, little droplets of comedy and put it together into a show. The network wasn't going to air it. They said, this is not a television show. I said, no, it's a new television show. And they said, but it doesn't make sense. I said, we ran it for a group of, of children in school, and they laughed. And they said, but they didn't understand it. I said, no, nor do you, but they laughed. And uh, <laughs> so they put it on the air kind of reluctantly. They were not going to air it because they said it didn't make sense. And I said, deliver it. It's not supposed to make sense. It's comedy. And uh, so they reluctantly put it on the air. And before they knew it, it got an audience. And by the third or fourth show, People said, wait a minute, there's something going on there. And we got a big audience. Well, what, once I got a big audience, I'm arrogant now, but if you can imagine me 50 years ago, whew, with a 50 share, I was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I dodged a bullet. Yeah, you did. You did. Well, the writers the writers were, uh, Alan Katz was not a comedy writer, as we knew comedy writers. And uh, uh, these were all, outcasts they were not they were not variety show writers they were just funny people that i'd have a meeting with and they made me laugh and that's what became the writing staff all of whom went on the big thing writer digby wolf was a big star in, in uh, australia and uh he got got fired because he took on the government of course that was just perfect for me <laughs> and he came in he was very literate and very intelligent and brought a certain amount of class and then uh uh so this whole group of writers that were not variety writers, they were not comedy, they were just funny people with funny ideas. And that became our writing staff. And the meetings, the meetings, I should have taped all of the meetings because they were hysterical. Oh, God, I, I could imagine. Open, uh, open You also had warfare. some guest stars. Pardon me? Well, it was open warfare with the censors and with each other. You know, we would tape and then we would write it. And then if it said, that's not going to work, we put it on air. And... Uh, uh, so it, it the meetings the meetings were as funny as the show 
And uh, I look back on it now. I was very, I was obviously much younger and uh, tireless. And uh, we would tape till two o'clock in the morning. And uh, then whatever work we would keep. I, I, I look back on it now as a real adventure that would be impossible today. It would have been impossible if NBC thought they were buying a real show. They knew they were buying something that was so inexpensive that they couldn't resist it. And uh, by the time it started to hit, it just exploded. Oh, sure. And I and I imagine that NBC took credit for developing the show as well. No, as a, matter of fact, as a matter of fact, for a long time, they were not very proud of it because we would have meetings with the censors. And while we were there, censors were telling me we couldn't do this. We were doing something worse than that that they didn't understand. Um, we had a kind of a freedom came from my own youth and arrogance and from the fact that it was in an impossible time period where they had nothing else to put on there. And so this just appeared till they could get a real show ready. And it happened by accident. You also use guest stars. One in particular was Richard Nixon doing Saka to me. How did that come about? Well, he didn't mean to. One of the writers, Paul Keyes, was a very close friend of Nixon's. And the second year, I needed something to open that second season with. And I said, we need something that's unusual. Paul Keyes says, well, maybe I can get Nixon. And I said, get him from me, too, because I was not fond of Richard Nixon. And so we went down. He was doing a press conference. And Paul Keyes said, Mr. Nixon, would you just say sock it to me? He said, sock it to me. No, no. It's kind of happy. Uh, uh, this comedy business is new to me, you know. Yeah. So sock it to me. We took that. Giving Richard Nixon comedy notes. No. Yeah. So we took it down the hall, put it in the next show, and the place exploded. Richard Nixon doing a comedy show was unheard of. And that kind of opened the door for, see, we didn't have the money and the reputation to get real guest stars. So we taped. Like John Wayne saying, I'm not going to do that show. Those people are crazy. And we taped that. We put it on the air. And all the guest stars we tried to get doing the Johnny Carson show, when they left the show and came down the hall, we said, would you tape this for laughing? And none of them really wanted to because none of them understood what they were doing, which was, which was what the show was about. <laughs> and, but my favorite was, uh, you know, Richard Nixon. Saka to me. Huh? And then John Wayne. I'm not going to do that show. No way. Eventually, not only did the show, he showed up in a blue bunny suit. So when the, wow. show, when the show hit, everybody wanted to do it. And that was very gratifying. Yeah, John Ford wanted him in a bunny suit in stagecoach, and he wouldn't do it. So, so congratulations. Well, I think I had exclusive rights to John Wayne in a bunny suit. I guess I guess you did. John Wayne, so I'm John going to Wayne. put you on the spot for a second here about Nixon, because... I think that his appearance on Laugh-In helped humanize him a little bit, which may have helped in a very close election. It may have helped him get elected. Do you feel a certain sense of guilt about that? I've had to live with that Um, because nobody thought, one, he would do it. And when he did it, nobody thought we'd put it on the air. And once we saw it and we realized the enormous reaction to it, Hubert Humphrey was running against Richard Nixon. And mm-hmm. I texted Hubert Humphrey all over the country trying to get him to say, what a good idea. Yes, do sock it to it. And Humphrey often said that not doing laughing may have cost him the election. But it changed television because at that point, no, nobody, no serious politician had ever done a comedy show. And at that point, then it became the thing to do. Now you can't keep them off. You know, I mean, uh, you, you see, uh, you know, Donald Trump 
<laughs> I don't. I don't want to see Donald Trump anywhere. But yeah, I, I, I do. There's a couple of places I'd like to see Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. None sing, of sing. No. Yeah. You hear, but if you hear the sound coming from the bathroom, you'll know what I think. Anyhow, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. I want to talk about uh, a couple of offshoots of Laugh-In that were less successful. Now, 1968, you tried to do an all-black version called Soul. Yep. How... How did that come about? That never went anywhere. Did you even make the pilot yeah, of that? What, what happened was it was an all-black show, and, and uh, Red Fox had never been allowed on network television because he his material was so dirty. So I said, I'll tape an hour and a half with him, and I'll use two minutes. Uh, it was my own uh, impatience with the medium and anything happening on the medium. It was black performers. One, one black performers couldn't buy houses. They were not on television. And uh, I wanted to do an all-black show. And what happened was we taped this show and NBC ran it for an audience. And the reaction to it was so positive, NBC said they could never cancel the show. They were afraid they couldn't cancel it because of the overwhelming response they got. So as a result, they sent the show to the Wayan Brothers. And that show became uh, the Wayan Brothers show, the uh, all-black show. And uh, it was an adventure. And it was, and it was, it was my own arrogance my own lack of attention uh, to to uh, the modern, what it was then, the, the acceptable uh, uh, form and, and sub subject matter. And when you saw that show, you ought to see that show today. It's still as funny as hell. And uh, I was proud of it. NBC was proud of it. They just were afraid to air it. So they, so I sent it to the Wayne brothers. That's interesting. They were afraid to air it because they were afraid they couldn't cancel it. Interesting. For the audience Backlash. Yeah, the audience reaction was so overwhelming. They said, "No, we could, we couldn't cancel it." But I had the same problem with other shows too. Now, nineteen sixty nine, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you on the spot again. ABC uh, lured you away to create their version, which was called Turn On. That was canceled. I mean, that's you know infamous in television circles. That was canceled. After one episode, well, talk now, about you, turn on. You 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 have some misinformation. Okay, not canceled after one episode. It was canceled during. During, yes. But, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what happened was uh, uh, they they wanted to do another innovation show, so we we put together this group of joke writers again and performers, and uh, when. The network saw it. The commitment went from 13 to 18. They were that positive about that show. It was used all the new technology, moved synthesizer and sound effects and all of that. So it was an experience in comedy. And uh, uh, so there's a guy in Cleveland anyway, that uh, wanted to keep Peyton Place on the air. So he called all of the stations while the show was on the air, while his first show was on the air, he called all of the stations and said, we can't allow this to happen and convinced them to cancel Turn On and bring back uh, Peyton Place. So as the show came across the country, he made these phone calls until by the time he got to California, 20 minutes into the show, it had been canceled. But today, oh, they also made a commitment that I would never run Turn On in order for them to pay me the money they owed me for the balance of the show because the commitment was like for 18 shows. Uh, they made a uh, promise that I would never air it. Suddenly, a couple of weeks ago, some kids found tapes of it in the archives, and we're going to release at least the first two of them. And you look at it and you say, 
what was wrong with this? What was wrong with it? It was just so tight and so progressive and so many sound effects and visual and different kinds of editing and rear projection. The things we did on Turn On were impossible at the time. So it came on the air and it, people were shocked, but it was funny. And uh, the, commi- the commitment of major sponsors bought into Turn On. And then, but this one sh- idiot in Cleveland got canceled all the way across it i remain as proud of turn on as anything i ever did and now we we found these tapes and we're going to air put the first two of them at least uh you put them on youtube yep and uh uh, it may even go on network because they are funny they even today they're a little bit shocking in the technique and in the editing technique and multiple images and sound effects and synthetic music and so forth but it was an adventure, and I was—I had the best time on Turn On. I am as proud of Turn On as anything I ever did, uh, even though it was canceled after the first twenty minutes. I Do you remember love... who some of the cast members were? Uh, uh, no, they—they, they, uh, um, no, nobody really came out famous in Turn On. I came, I came out <laughs> famous in Turn On, but they were a group of of young and and uh, uh, character people again. And uh, uh, but major sponsors bought into the show. Um, but it just shows how how timid the networks were at that point. They were brave enough to buy 13 and then increase the sale to 18. But then they were not brave enough to go up against this one idiot in Cleveland. Uh, I, I say that with no respect. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but I'm proud of Turner. And they, by the way, by the way, they're going to release two of the shows at least are going to run. Well, uh, I look forward to seeing them. It's funny. It is. It's not funny like funny, funny. It's funny, strange, and funny, uh, outrageous. Uh, you, you, you'll. It'll get your. It'll get your attention. But Bristol Myers. Wrote, now, do you have to be on acid to fully appreciate it? No, you have to be awake. Uh, okay. Well, that's a problem for me. But okay. Television has become a nightlight. You know, it doesn't really demand your attention. Well, laughing demanded your attention, and turn on absolutely demanded your attention. That is part one with George Slaughter. Part two coming up next week. And next week, we get back into his earlier career when he was producing the Judy Garland show. Oh, man, some stories there. He worked with Sinatra. He worked with Sammy Davis Jr. Lots of great stories and name-dropping. It's a very fun episode, so come back for that next week. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce and Jason Miller. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where you can see some of my New Yorker cartoons. So come back for part two with George Slaughter next week, right here on Hollywood and Levine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.